Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With GEICO, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports. It's Women's History Month, and there's no better way to celebrate than by hearing from amazing women who are making history and changing the world for the better. Learn from leaders like Tori Birch, Madeline Albright, Ariana Huffington, Katie Couric, Valerie Jarrett, and more. Listen to Seneca Women Conversations on Power and Purpose on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. everybody welcome to movie crush charles w chuck bryant here home studio pond city market atlanta mini crush edition with noel chuck yes i just like that i don't know that's just it's like i'm being for being too formal chuck how are you i'm good dude good how are you welcome back to town hey thanks man you spent a few days in new york city right it's been a whirlwind yeah i saw um have you, have you seen sleep no more Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's this crazy immersive theater thing that's sort of Macbeth, but it's like being in a video game where you're wandering around this crazy space. Man. And it was intense. I love that you went to sleep no more. I, I love that I did, too. It was it was wild. I was not expecting it to be so physical. You're running up and down steps the whole time. Yeah. And you're out of breath. And, yeah. Uh-huh. But, and, and <laughs> well, you can yeah. kind of... Uh... You can have whatever experience you want with it, yeah. which is kind of cool. But I ended up kind of spazzing out and trying to chase different actors. It's like, <laughs> it's a very like Alice down through the looking glass kind of experience where you don't really know what's going to be on the other side of the door when you chase something. Right. And you lose them immediately, but then you find something that, that you weren't even looking for. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Go check it out. If anyone's in New York City, check out Sleep No More. It's been running since like 2011. I didn't realize so long. It's been around. Yeah. And I think that was one of those that was supposed to not run very long. Yeah. I think it was supposed to have like a very short run. And then they lit New York on fire, um, quite literally. No, mm-hmm. I'm just kidding. No, no, just the theater world. Well, I hope you had everything you needed for that show. No. Yeah, I did. Um, no, not, not, not everything. Just some, <laughs> some of the things. Enough of the things. There was a delightful little speakeasy that you walk into and get yourself a yeah. $18 cocktail. And uh, <laughs> yeah. God bless New York and their $18 cocktails. Indeed. Cheers. Uh, so welcome, everyone. And welcome back, Noel. And this is... Uh, another mini crush edition. I want to thank everyone for their support for these shows, as always, for chiming in on Facebook when I throw out questions. And we're going to go ahead and just ramp right into it with a social studies segment. Social studies on movie crush. All right. This week we did all time uh, favorite animated film. And I think it's interesting. A few people said, including my the beloved Sarah Law, said, the Wallace and Gromit things. I know you asked for animated films, but Wallace and Gromit. I was like, Sarah, those are animated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's stop motion animation. That's right. It doesn't have to be drawn. It doesn't have to be CGI uh, characters. I mean, if, if if stop motion is an animation, then CGI definitely is an animation. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so, but, so I'm just going to kind of go through these fast because I want to get as many of them in as I can. Uh, Alex Glasanovic 
says the emperor's new groove. Did not see that. The aforementioned Sarah Law said uh, the Wallace and Gromit, any of those first three movies, totally agree. Those are beloved by me. If you ever saw the BBC TV series Creature Comforts, um, that's where those guys, uh, Nick Park and the Ardman Animation Group, that's where that all came from. Check out Creature Comforts if you can. Kelly Kutchen Tally says Ratatouille. Uh, did not see that, actually. It's uh, Patton Oswalt's famous turn as the Remy the Rat. Oh, yeah? Yeah, the uh, he's like a gourmet uh, rat who has really, really amazing taste and is in France and wants to be a chef. It's a delightful little picture. Yeah, a lot of these got away from me because it was a big gap because Emily hates animated movies. Uh, but now that we have a daughter, she's into it. So I'm picking back up again. Uh, Tabitha uh, Jim, Jimmy, says The Iron Giant for sure. A lot of people said The Iron Giant. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. So it doesn't surprise me. I hear it's a real tearjerker. I've not seen it for that reason. It's good. Um, most of them are tearjerkers at some point, though. You know? Yeah, that's true. I always talk about the Pixar effect. You yeah. know, every time I go to one, especially now that I've got a child, well, I've had one for nine years now. But um, when we go and she's a little more cognizant of the of things, um, I always tear up, man, every yeah. time. Because like, I always relate it back to our relationship and stuff. Yeah. And then she looks over at me and just kind I of shamed. <laughs> Has yeah. she looked at you yet and said, Dad, this is bullshit? Oh, no, 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 no. No, in fact, I, I'm the one that tells her things are bullshit okay, most of the good. time. She really likes some of these Disney pieces of trash, like the, the ones for teens that I just can't stand. And I try to point out to oh, her yeah. why this is bad. Right. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. <laughs> Andrew Heath says Inside Out. Talk about a tearjerker. Whew. Yeah, that's amazing. That's the that's kind of the one I'm talking about because that's all about the experience of growing up and being a child and like nostalgia. And it, you start thinking about your childhood and then my kid and all yeah. of this stuff and it just whoa, wells wells right up in you. Well, the Toy Story series. Uh, Rob Dickinson says the first Toy Story, and that is definitely one that will yank your heartstrings in a million directions as that series goes. For sure, because you know at some point that boy's going to grow up. He's going to forget about those damn toys. Yep. And that's what happens. Spoiler. Sorry. That's just life, man. There, there, there's no, you can't spoil life. Let me see here. Land Before Time from Kristen Wells. Never saw that one. Spirited Away. I need to see that. I've heard that's wonderful. Uh, Don McGoey says Spirited Away. Uh, haunting and beautifully illustrated. It's fantastic. All those Ghibli. Ghibli? Is it Ghibli? I think it's Ghibli. I don't know. Miyazaki, his studio is called Studio Ghibli, and like all any of his movies are insane. Um, there's Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away and Howl's Moving Castle and uh, any of those. Yeah, they're, they're amazing. Noel, you know more about the stuff than I do. Well, he's sort of the uh, the Japanese Walt Disney is what people refer to him as. Oh, really? Very, very, very prolific and detailed uh-huh. work. Really, really cool. All right, I'll check it out. Tyler Murphy, Murph says Lion King. That's always a good one. American Tale, Fran Williams. Uh, Wall E, hands down, from Brandon Johnson. Uh, yeah, Wall E, that was a good one. I think Emily even saw that one. I managed to drag her to the theater for that. Uh, Zach Pointer says, really tough, but it's got to be Aladdin uh, due to Genie. Yeah, Aladdin was classic. Uh, the Incredibles, Thor uh, Bunk says The Incredibles, and that's got a sequel coming out soon. It does, yeah. I, I I feel like I haven't seen that one. It's about the superhero family, right? Yeah, it's a good one mm-hmm. for sure. Uh, Zach say the Disney Robin Hood. Man, that's a good one. The old school Disney Robin Hood. I like the, there's the chicken that sings 
kind of narrates it in song. Yeah. Isn't it the guy that did King of the Road? King of the Rod, Road. Yes, Roger Miller. That's him, yeah. Uh-huh. His songs are in that. Mm-hmm. Nice call. Uh, Joshua Brennan says, Coco, I got to say, Coco is up there for me, man. Gorgeous. One of the best looking movies I've ever seen. So beautiful. And the story is just. Very hard. It hits. It hits. It's not a bummer. It's like it just it, it just makes you, fills you with joy. Yeah, really good one. And for me, I'm going to I'm gonna say Coco. And then for just my classic grown up years, um, there is no better movie to me than uh, The Jungle Book. Um, still one of my favorites. I know all those songs by heart. Sing them to my daughter. She thinks it's hysterical. Oh, yeah. Because I sing them in character. That's great. It is <laughs> a lot of fun. And fun. Um, Edwin Forrest Glenn. I love that Disney short called Ben and Me when I was a kid. It's about Ben Franklin and the American Revolution. Mm. That's a deep cut. I don't know that one. Uh, the Swan Princess, Jessica Hamilton. Uh, Lion King, another one for Lion King, Thomas Mario. I need to check some of these out. Oh, Lady and the Tramp, Janet James Allman. That's a, yeah. So, so those movies from the... 50s and 60s from Disney were really, really great. Oh, yeah. And they all hold up. Gorgeous movies. Yeah, they do hold up. The writing is really good. The story's there. I think that was a big important thing for for Walt was to, you know, start with an amazing story and kind of go from there. Yeah, agreed. All right. Well, that's it for uh, animated film. Sorry if it didn't get to you. Um, I would, trust me, I would love to read 400 answers. But then you all would be like, dude, that's not very good programming. <laughs> Here's the thing. Saving money with Geico is almost better than playing pickup basketball. Because there's always that guy who joins your game. He never passes the rock, he constantly bricks threes, and he'll completely hack you and then put his hands up and say, no foul, no foul. With Geico, it's easy to switch and save on car insurance. No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with Geico. It's almost better than sports. Hey, it's Ben, Henry, and Marcus, hosts of The Last Podcast on the Left. Our show's dedicated to uncovering hilariously horrifying stuff. And now we're only on Spotify. Join us. If you want. Obviously, we'd never force anyone to just blindly join us. That'd be crazy. But if you like stories about doomsday cults who do exactly that and more, please join us on Spotify. Visit Spotify.com slash last podcast to listen free. All right, so we're going to move on now to a recommended viewing segment. And as everyone knows, I pick out an independent film, a foreign film, and a documentary to recommend. And this week, my independent film is Passion Fish, the great John Sayles movie from 1993. Have you seen this one, Noel? I have not. Good one, buddy. Uh, starring uh, the great Mary McDonald and Alfre Woodard, uh, the great, great Alfre Woodard, and the always amazing David Strathern, um, who is a John Sayles regular. Um, and it tells the story of this uh, woman, a soap opera star, uh, Mary McDonald, who gets injured uh, and paralyzed and is forced to return home to um, the bayou in Louisiana and to this house where she has a series of nurses coming in to try and care for her. She's an awful person to deal with, angry at what has happened to her. But you also get the sense that she was an awful person before this happened. And then eventually, Alfre Woodard uh, comes in as her nurse that sticks and basically it's, you know, it's kind of that story that you've seen before. It's um, nothing revolutionary, but the the one nurse who comes in and is just like, you can treat me however you want, lady. I'm not going anywhere. I will take all that you can throw at me. And 
Of course, what happens, they strike up a friendship. Lessons are learned. Mm -hmm. But it's just a beautiful, beautiful film about human beings and friendship and just uh, a typical John Sayles stuff. Um, got Best Actress and Best Script nominations for uh, Mary McDonnell and John Sayles for the Oscar. Did not win. And then Best Actress and Supporting Actress um, for the Golden Globes for both of those women. Highly recommend it. 93, you say? Yep. Okay, cool. It, was, it kind of made me think of like a movie like Fried Green Tomatoes or something. Is it sort of in that vein a little bit? No. No. Okay. No. Never mind. All right, next up, uh, foreign film pick. I'm going to go with Tokyo Story. And this one is uh, the pick of, I don't think it has aired yet, but it is the pick of one of my guests, Loudon Wainwright III. So I hadn't heard of this movie. It's from 1953, directed by... Uh, Yasujiro Ozu, starring Chishu Ryu and Chiko Higashiyama. I do my best there with the Japanese, everybody. It's all you can do. Very tough for me. Uh, Tokyo Story, man. So this movie is, it's a bit of a challenge. So if you go to watch it, be patient. Um, you have to sit with it. And there are rewards is what I will say. There are great rewards if you if you sit through this movie. It is it is very slow. It's very languid. Um, it is not something if you're uh, an American audience that you may not be used to seeing culturally. Uh, this family. It tells story. Just let me set up real quick. I guess the story of an an elderly Japanese couple who get to see their children, uh, their grown adult children in Tokyo on a visit. And the children don't have time for their parents, don't make time for their parents, and are kind of shuffling them between each other and kind of tells a story um, of these these parents who are sort of an afterthought to their to their kids now. So what you might be used to as an American audience is um, more emotion and uh, touching. Like they don't touch one another. They don't hug one another. They don't cry when they're upset. Um, and so it's a little tough to find a way in emotionally as an American, I think. But if you accept it for what it is, which is a viewpoint of a different culture, and you look at the beautiful black and white photography and these understated performances, uh, there there are great rewards to, to watching this film. Um, really, really good movie. Uh, beautiful photography. Um, it, it is regarded as one of the all-time great movies of all time. Um, Roger Ebert has hit his uh, one of his great movies lists, and I think it's on some AFI list of, of top 100 movies of all time. So really, really good story. So many good, like, reflective, meditative movies in Japanese cinema, the early stuff, like even Kurosawa, like yeah. uh, Ikiru. Uh -huh. You know, it's like a meditation on life and death, and it is slow, but it it kind of, it's almost like a poem or something. You have, yeah. You kind of have to, like, really, Absolutely, really take it in, you know? Yep. You got to give it a little time. But they are universal themes, you know? Um, it deals with alcoholism and family and relationships in such a real way. And, and the director will, he just locks down that camera. I don't think there's a camera move in the whole movie. And so you really get to just sit in these scenes and he will often begin the scenes um, several beats before anyone comes in and then hold the camera there several beats after they have left to an empty room, almost to just let you sit with what you've just seen and heard. So I uh, highly recommend Tokyo Story. And then finally, documentary Muscle Shoals. You see this one, Noel? Uh, I know it's about the studio, right? Yeah, the, yeah, big famed recording studio. That's right. Uh, called Fame. Uh, Greg, Freddie, uh, Camelier, 
directed this documentary, and it's about two studios actually. Initially, the Fame Studio, in uh, in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and specifically about the the Swampers, the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section, who played on so many great recordings, and then they eventually left the Fame Studio, started their own uh, Muscle Shoals Studio in Alabama. They're the Muscle Shoals Sound Studio, and just basically tells their story how everyone like this middle of nowhere town in Alabama, Mick Jagger's coming through and Keith Richards yeah. and Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett and Paul Simon and Bob Seger. And like, you name it, man, they're coming through this small town, Greg Allman. And, uh, well, it's authentic, right? Like, it's like the stones were so obsessed with like oh, yeah. the blues and like Southern culture or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's where you gotta sense. go. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I, and I think for a lot of these, uh, the African-American artists like Aretha Franklin and Wilson Pickett, they thought, uh, Etta James, they thought, well, we'll go there and record with these with these black folks who are who are making this music. They got there, and it's all these kind of square white guys. And they're like, "That's who's making that sound," and they're like, "Great, let's do it." All right. And uh, so they ended up recording some of the greatest uh, uh, rhythm and blues and um, soul music of all time. They recorded with Jimmy Cliff. Yeah, like everybody used them. Now, was it Patterson Hood from the Drive By Truckers? He plays into the story. Like his father was either a set, one of the session guys at Muscle Shoals. He was or the bassist. The bassist. There you go. Yeah. The founding four were uh, Barry Beckett played keyboards, Roger Hawkins played drums, David Hood, Patterson's dad played bass, and Jimmy Johnson played guitar. That's so cool. And that was the core four. And then, you know, eventually added more players for whatever their needs were. Patterson Hood of the Drive By Truckers, a big Athens band, if you haven't checked him yeah, out. Yeah. His kid went to the same Montessori school as my kid, and I'd always see him there, like dropping his kid off. Oh, no way. He's just sort of like a dude around town. It's fine. Yeah. He's a, the sweetest guy. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Aretha Franklin's Respect was recorded by these guys. Mustang Sally, When a Man Loves a Woman, I'll Take You There by the Staple Singers. Um, Wild Horses and Brown Sugar from the Rolling Stones. Oh. It's just off the charts. I think um, 75 Golden Platinum hits were recorded by the Mus- by the Swampers. And if you've ever heard the song Sweet Home Alabama by Leonard Skinner, uh, Muscle Shoals has got the Swampers. That's They've cool. been known to pick a song or two. That's right. Yeah, That's, that's funny. That I never from. caught that lyric. That's funny. Yeah, it's really great. So uh, Muscle Shoals tells that story um, really, really well. And if you're a music fan and a documentary fan, then you can't do much better than this one. Really good stuff. All right. Segment three, Noel. We're going to stick with John Sales on the highlight reel. You were just saying off mic that you didn't know much about John Sales. Well, I looked it up, and I, I just I, I don't recognize a ton of his work. I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued. Oh, man, he's the best. He's he's an indie legend. He started his career, as a, like so many great directors, as a disciple of Roger Corman. Uh, doing script work for hire. He wrote Piranha, the original Piranha movie. Nice. He wrote Alligator and The Howling um, and used the money from writing these genre pictures uh, to finance uh, these independent films that he started making. Uh, his his first movie that he wrote and directed was called Return of the Secaucus 7. He made The Brother from Another Planet. He made Matawan. He made Eight Men Out, the great baseball story. I have seen Matawan. I love that movie. Yeah, really About good the movie. coal mining community, right? Yep. With a very young uh, Will Oldham, Bobby yes. Prince Billy, uh, playing the, the oh, preacher man. boy. That is a cool... I watched that in college, actually, in a class. That is a kick-ass movie. Yeah, Matawan's great. And Bonnie Prince Billy is a bucket list guest for this show. Uh, City of Hope, The Secret of Rowan Inish, Lone Star... Men with Guns, Casadelos Babies. He is just a guy that makes 
quality movies every time out of the gate. He always, uh, they always have that indie spirit. He varies his genres. He's all over the place. Like, Eight Men Out was a, uh, was the tale of the the, the baseball uh, Black Sox scandal. Um, Matawan was the story of the uh, coal mining. Was it a strike? Yeah, exactly. Like a labor strike. Yeah, period piece, of course. Mm-hmm. A City of uh, Hope was about uh, the inner city. Um, Return of Sakaka 7 was about a bunch of old friends. Um, Secret of Rowan Inish was a, a fantasy fairy tale. He is all over the place genre-wise. And no matter what it is that John Sales takes on, he does a great job. Because at the heart of every single one of these films, they're really about people. Um, and stories about real characters and real people. Uh, Passion Fish, the one I just talked about earlier. Another great example of a, of a John Sales film. Uh, sometimes they're set in other countries. Sometimes they're completely in foreign languages. It's like he's essentially making a foreign film. Uh, and like, uh, I can't remember where Casa de los Babies was, but I believe that one was mostly subtitled. Um, often tell stories of minorities, uh, women, people of color. He's just sort of a champion of stories that you don't get to see enough of. And I uh, can't recommend any John Sales film enough. He's still doing it after all these years. Um, Chris Cooper and David Strathairn are a couple of the the guys. I think they've been like four or five movies each. Um, just really, really great filmmaker and has always stayed true to himself. Never sold out. Um, he'll, he'll make his money here and there still for scripting uh, big movies. But uh, he's always remained true to who he is. Yeah, I think that's what threw me. His IMDb has a, his writer credits kind of first and foremost. Yeah. Because he doesn't have nearly as many director credits, but he's got a, a shit ton of writing credits. And I some think he of them wrote are, one of the Jurassic Park movies even. I would not be surprised. Which is kind of crazy. But uh, yeah, boy, John Sayles. My hat is off to you, sir. He's another a bucket list guest. All right, Noel. Watch some John Sayles. Oh, I shall. I say besides Madawan, what am I going to say you should watch? I would say... Well, Passion Fish, so I can see that it's nothing like fried green tomatoes. <laughs> you know what? Watch Lone Star. Okay. That's my pick for you. Is it a horror? It looks like a horror, kind of. It's got a skull on the on the <laughs> movie box. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. Sort of a modern day Western. Got it. But it's about a murder in like a small Western town. Really good movie. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've used my podcast, Next Question, as a platform to explore the big issues we face in these crazy times. And right now, there's no crazier time and no bigger issue than the coronavirus, which is why we're switching gears and pushing our regular reported episodes to the summer. In the meantime, we're going to stay focused on the coronavirus, talking to the experts so you can really understand what's going on. I know it's overwhelming, but we can get through this together. You can listen to Next Question on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. We want you to know that we are here for you. Comment card. We're going to finish with questions from you to us. First out of the gate, Jonathan Hand says, what do you think makes a good movie adaptation of a book? Uh, Recently, a few of my favorites have been made. Ready Player One, The Martian, and Ender's Game. He liked Ready Player One and Martian did not like Ender's Game. So I'm going to say kind of broadly, just capturing the essence of that book and getting the casting right are the two most important things. I always wonder, though, it's like it's it's really hard because you're sort of 
torn between two things. It's like making the movie for fans of the book or just making the movie to be a good movie. That's what you have to do. Right. I think. I think the so, second too. Thing. I, think, I think so, too. But you always end up with, like, these book fan people yeah. that just are going to shred it no these, matter what. These readers. These readers. <laughs> who's got time for that these days? Come on. But, like, you know, the Annihilation, which I loved, um, the the most recent, I forget the director's name, but he did um, Ex Machina, the really great AI yeah. sci-fi movie from a couple years ago. Um, Annihilation is based on a series of books, and it's very clear from the movie that he is not going to make the yeah. others, and that it was sort of a mishmash of a lot of stuff from the yeah. different books. And it's very well reviewed. I think it's fantastic. Fantastic, but I have a friend who really loved the books, and he was sort of torn by the movie. Like he, yeah, he liked man. it. On the one hand, he felt like the book was so precious that he felt like it was sort of bastardized a little bit. So that's a weird place to find yourself, right? I think you have to serve the movie first and foremost, yeah. because if you're trying to serve the book, uh, you're in trouble. Like you got to make a good movie, and all you readers out there. <laughs> I'm doing that voice because of the great Bill Hicks. With bit. you, with your mint juleps. <laughs> Did you ever hear? But you know Bill Hicks. Yeah, comedian? of course. Yeah, his his <laughs> when he was talking about he was like in like a Waffle House reading a book. Yeah, and someone said, "Why are you reading?" And he was like, "Not what are you reading? Yeah. Why are you right. reading?" Yeah. And then he goes in this whole book like, "We got ourselves a reader over here, everybody." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, uh, oh yeah, man, the great Bill Hicks. He's yeah, he's priceless. So yeah, capture the essence of the book. Serve the movie first, uh, and casting is so key. Oh yeah. Well, it's like you know the, the Game of Thrones thing is I'm just gonna real quick. Like there's so many scenes in the Game of Thrones books that are just painfully long. Yeah. And there's like, you know, three pages of describing a banquet table or whatever, right. you know? And in the movie, you can accomplish that with like one pan shot, you yeah, know? exactly. So, and I really think that the uh, the TV show m- serves the source material almost better than the source material. Because yeah. it like moves the story along yeah. in a much more timely manner, I think. Yeah, and I think by essence, that's sort of a weird word to use, but I mean tone, I think is what I mean. Yep. Capturing the tone of the books. For sure. Uh, and then he also asked, what, what do I want to see made? I want to see been saying this for years. I want to see the book Middlesex made into a movie. I feel like we did this bit before on, a, on another episode. I think so. It's okay, though. doesn't matter. Yeah. Many di- we, are, we contain <laughs> multitudes. Uh, ben McVitie says, if you could erase one movie from your memory so that you could see it again for the first time, what would you pick? That's good. And I try not to overthink these, Ben. And I went back, and I'm also going to answer this as if it would go back to that time um, so I could re-experience at that age. And I'm going to go with Raiders of the Lost Ark because that movie, more so than Back to the Future and E.T. and any of those Goonies, any of those classic movies from that age, Raiders knocked me out of my seat. And I wish I could go back and be a kid and see that again for the first time. My, mine's a, a time and place thing too. It, it's and it's a movie that has not aged well and that people kind of rip on a lot. But it's Fight Club because that. Oh yeah. For man. me, when I was you know I was like in high school or like you know like ninth, ninth grade or something, tenth grade when that came out, and that twist blew my mind. Yeah, man. Wasn't expecting it. Did yeah. not see it coming. You look back on it now and you feel like a dope. But I totally was like all on board and all in. Me too. And it made me like discover Chuck Palahniuk's books and yep. get a little more into like I don't know like I, like, I discovered the Pixies because of that movie. There's a lot of things yeah. that movie did for me that were were yeah. interesting. So I, I would say that, I'm that's... still behind Fight Club, man. That was a great movie yeah. and very uh, not revolutionary, but just it was an important movie at the time. 
I think so, too. But there's a lot of arguments that it's overly misogynistic and blah, blah, blah. But I think that's missing the point because, of course, it is. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but it's also not fair to look at movies through the modern lens. I mean, you can make judgments on them for sure. But at the time, you know, it's a great movie. All right, well, it's also like to me the the this isn't a spoiler at all. But there's a scene at the very end of the movie when that iconic Pixie song plays that sort of makes you realize, or at least it did for me, that all of the chaos and and psychotic behavior in that movie was all in service of a very small love story. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Agreed. All right, I read that book too. Did you read it? I did. Yeah, I read a couple of other his too at the time. Mm-hmm. Can't remember which one. Haven't seen a, a successful adaptation quite like that. Like there was one with Sam Rockwell. I saw that and read that. What was that one called? Choke. Yeah, wasn't my favorite of his books, and didn't feel nah. like it needed to be made into a movie. Nah, movie was great. It was very forgettable. Lisa Potts says, "Do you think movies overdo special effects now?" Uh, yes. But then there's also backlash where we have this cool resurgence of like practical effects. Well, sure. Which is neat. Yeah. Because there's always that the pendulum swings both ways, right? Like, uh, yeah. I think for me, overusing special effects is uh, not so much like I think they overuse it with backdrops and uh, more than anything. I see. Like, you know, I miss the days where a, a battle scene had. Like 500 people out there and not like, let's have 10,000 CG people. Right. You know, have get 500 people out there. It's kind of Lord of the Rings fault. It's Well, I, I lay a lot at the feet of Lord of the Rings, yeah. blame-wise. <laughs> but is that was the first time they were able to really do that super well, kind of, you know? It, yeah. Argu- arguably compared to maybe what you'd seen in the past. And so then it became the fad, the fashion to just do that, you know? Yeah, I think I'm just still mad at Lord of the Rings because... Uh, it uh, it overshadowed Master and Commander at the Oscars oh. all year long. Yeah, I didn't see Master and Commander. <laughs> oh, man, that fucking movie is so good. Okay. Like, you watch Master and Commander, and you're like, is this real? Like, did they travel back in time and capture a story on film? It's that believable and that real. But by the great Peter Weir. In Lord of the Rings, they tried out a bunch of CG. No, don't get me started. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to reel you back in, Chuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think they overdo it now, but it, thankfully we are seeing a return. And the other thing that bugs me about CG is uh, animals. Like when, you know, used to have, uh, like, well, in, uh, what's the DiCaprio one recently where he was, um, the, the the period piece where he was attacked by a bear. And, oh, yeah, that was uh, The Revenant. Yeah, The Revenant. Yeah. Like, they used a bear. That was a bear. But then yeah. they also mixed in a little CG, but they did it well. But right. when they're just trotting out uh, completely fake-looking CG animals all over the place, I miss the days where they had the real tiger and sure. the real bear yeah, yeah, yeah. and the real deer running across the screen. Again, though, I feel like that backlash is interesting because you start to see real auteurs it being very important to them yeah. to do that, you know? Sure. Like, you, Del Toro is a good example. Like, I know how you were lukewarm about Shape Benicio of Water. Benicio Del Toro? <laughs> yes, that one. That guy. But, you know, you can't deny that the the practical effects in that movie were pretty, yeah. pretty arresting. That was and, a guy and, in a suit. Yeah. And it looked great. Mm-hmm. And it looked way better than CGI. Totally. E.T. looked great because it was yeah. a real thing in three dimensions. I got to go to Lucasfilm uh, recently for in, in Industrial Light and Magic yeah. for work and in the on the walls in that it's an office. They don't even hardly shoot anything there anymore. You're just walking around this giant like office. But on the walls are all these matte paintings like on that wow. were, that are done on shower doors. Wow. And it's like this giant 
slab of glass with like the the L.A. cityscape from E.T. on it, and oh, there are yeah. little spots where there's holes punched in it, and they would light these things from oh, the yeah. back, right? Uh-huh. And they would use it as like this is the L.A. And if you step back enough, even in the room, it looks pretty pretty yeah. convincing. But then you kind of walk in, you can see the brush strokes and stuff. But that's fucking cool. Yeah, man. Yeah. Uh, if you go to New York uh, next time you go, go Mus- to the what uh, Museum of the Moving Image. I think is what it's called. I think that's it in Queens. I've heard good things. It's great. I went a couple of years ago because they had a Mad Men exhibit, um, and they have, you know, they're like all museums, like they're rotating featured thing, but they have quite a few great things on display at all times. And one of the things they had was the the original model uh, from Blade Runner of the, uh, what's the name of the, the, the company? Terrell? The Terrell Corporation. Yeah. And it's one of those where like they... They put lights in there and uh-huh. they shine through the little the little holes yeah, that yeah, they yeah. poke. Yeah. And they film it with a camera and it's in three dimensions and it looks amazing. Yep. Yeah. Really cool stuff. Very cool. All right. Old men going on a rant. <laughs> you are much older than me, Chuck. <laughs> How old are you? <laughs> 34. Oh, Jesus. Uh, Nicole Parks. Man, 34 is a good age, Noel. Not much. Come drink on. I'm, joke, I'm joking with you. I, I, I no, I'm, 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 are you kidding me? I'm 46. Okay. Well, you look no, good, Chuck. I'm 47. Well, you look good for 47. God. Uh, if I shaved my beard, I would look 38. Well, don't ever do that. It no. will it will scare your child. <laughs> and I, I can tell you that from experience. I did that one time. Oh, did and it? my kid, she was like out. four, and she did not recognize me, and yeah. she freaked, freaked out. Seriously, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nicole Park says, if you could date any character from a movie, who would it be? Uh, this is easy for me. I'm going with Jake Ryan. From Sixteen Candles, I, I haven't seen a lot of those uh, those movies. Oh man, Bre- Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candy. I need to go back. He and was do that. handsome. He was preppy. Yeah. He drove a Porsche. Yeah, he was Sounds a man like of, a real dreamboat. He was cool. Yeah, he was a total dreamboat. Yeah. So yeah, Jake Ryan. Cool. Well, I'm gonna watch that movie and then I'll agree with you. <laughs> uh, Sixteen Candles. Some of those John Hughes movies now don't uh, reflect well through today's lens. Mm. I know I just said that. That's unfair. Yeah, but, but like blatantly, blatantly racist uh, characters yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Emilio Alvarado. Emilio Alvarado says, "Who's your favorite villain in a film, and why?" I picked a couple here. I'm going to go with three. Actually, I'm going to go with Annie Wilkes from Misery because she's Kathy Bates and she's Annie Wilkes in Misery, and she was creepy and scary while being um, who she was, which was. Vanilla, uh, seemingly sweet uh, and good, which it makes for complexity of character, which always makes for a better character. And it took her a while to like simmer over into full on. Oh yeah, man, that crazy switch. town, uh-huh. you know. And and, and <laughs> even then, she kind of did it like I'm doing a, you a favor. Yeah, I'm doing all this for you, for yeah. us. Such a know? good movie. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, Frank Booth from uh, Blue Velvet, genuinely one of the most disturbing. Uh, threatening characters I've ever seen in a movie was was Dennis Hopper as Frank Booth in Blue Velvet. Uh, and then I'm going to pick uh, Nurse Ratchet from Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, who was that? Louise Fletcher, I believe. I think you're right, yeah. I think she won an Oscar for that, too. Um, boy, Nurse Ratchet, one of the great all-time villains. If you haven't seen that movie, check it out. She did such a good job as the steely, reserved, uh, keeping it all together, Nurse Ratchet, but with also like a like a real mean streak, a mean manipulative streak though, but also contained, which made it even better. Oh, big time! Yeah, love that film. 
You got anything else, Noel? Uh, what, just, just intense characters, intense villains? Yeah, favorite villains. Um, you, you named some of my favorites, dude. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I think you, I'm going to go with, I'm just going to leave it be. That's a really good list. <laughs> All right. All right. We're going to wrap it up for this week then. Thanks, everybody. Uh, your homework coming up this Friday, our new pal, Aaron Mankey, the great podcaster of Lore Fame, uh, is now with our company. He's going to do some, some podcasting with us. Pretty exciting. Yes. Yeah, so excited about because Aaron is not only insanely talented, but uh turns out he's a great dude. Very down to earth, very fun to talk to, and very just razor sharp guy. Yeah. Super smart. Um, great podcaster. And uh watch the movie The Village. That was Aaron's pick, which is really kind of fit when he told me the village was his movie pick. It all made sense because if you're a fan of lore and you know the movie The Village from M. Night uh Shyamalan, then uh it all kind of makes sense. So watch the village this week and look for Aaron Menke on Friday. And thanks for joining us this week and contributing on Facebook. And we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Hello, this is Ron Burgundy. And you are listening to my voice, which commands trust and respect. Guess what? My podcast is back, and that's a win for everyone. If you're a longtime listener to the show, you probably already know the deal. Each week, I bring you hard-hitting journalism and also light entertainment. I contain multitudes. Find the Ron Burgundy Podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every shelter pet is unique. Some love a good game of fetch. Others would rather snuggle together with you on the couch. However, there is one thing that they all have in common. They are all pure love. And right now, millions of pets in shelters and rescues across the country are waiting to be adopted. Did you know that only 44% of dogs and 47% of cats in American homes come from animal shelters and rescue groups? The unique quality of each and every shelter pet adds up to an incredible bond between every shelter pet and every pet's parent. If you're thinking about getting a pet, make sure to visit theshelterpetproject.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, Maddie's Fund, and the Humane Society of the United States.